Unless you've made a serious mistake, you are currently listening to a free excerpt of the committee program with me, Arun Chaudhary. Our show contains lots more global politics, and you can become a member at fans.fm slash committee to receive our full YouTube show, audio, plus other exclusive content. That's fans.fm slash committee. And be sure to check out our YouTube show every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Namiki Konst YouTube channel. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Thanks so much for joining us again on the show, on the committee program with Arun Chaudhary, who is me. And now we're going to do another edition of Smart Club, and it's going to be about self-determination. And I've seen a lot of chatter uh, when the word nationalism comes up in the chat. And, and I think this is sort of the crux of what we're talking about. So I hope everybody enjoys this segment, and I'm really looking forward to it. Self-determination. It's a term both simple and slippery. Woodrow Wilson and Comrade Lenin both began the 20th century by speaking about it. And by the end of that century, the words nationalism, self-determination, popular sovereignty, national liberation were all bandied about together as much a part of the anti-colonial project as of any reactionary nativist movement. In the 21st century, we have seen nationalism mainly used as a pejorative term to describe the phenomenon as exclusively bad and leading to evil, but that hardly seems fair as progressive nationalism seems once again to be on the rise to counter the new colonialism of neoliberalism. I could have probably also just said neocolonialism. With us to discuss self-determination in the 21st century are Ben Jackson, Associate Professor of Modern History at Oxford University and the author of The Case for Scottish Independence, A History of National Political Thought in Modern Scotland, and he's going to speak about the smooth democratic processes we have going on there. And then we have, are going to speak with Liz Castro, who's a writer and publisher and the founder of, how do you say the name of the platform? I want to make sure that I say it correctly. I meant to give you the, the uh, transliteration. It's Asheta Bunkat. Asheta. And we will put uh, a post to that. And it's a nonprofit platform promoting creation. Uh, and I hope we talk about that in a different capacity at some point uh, in the future. And she's going to be talking about the mixed legality and protest efforts happening in, in Catalonia. We're making a spectrum here, as you'll see, is what I'm doing. And finally, Buhar Aruchaj, a research associate and lecturer uh, at the Institute of Sociology at the Free University of Berlin, and someone who I often turn to when I'm looking for answers on his native country of Kosovo, where transparency alert, I work closely with the Vet Vendosia movement, which actually means self-determination in Albanian, but I'm sure that will come up. So look, we don't have to look for trouble right from the beginning. We can look for things that are not controversial. And can we start just by talking about each of these places has a culture and political history that passes muster as an independent nation? Can we just fill the listeners in? And let's start with uh, Ben Jackson. You know, the United Kingdom is not an ancient project. Can you just talk about, uh, just bring us a, a, a brief history up to the present? Sure. Well. Uh... Scotland was a, an independent state uh, until 1707 when it entered uh, a union of parliaments with, with England and Wales and, and created the, the, the Kingdom of uh, Britain. Um, and from 1707, Scotland was an integrated part of the British political system right through the, the kind of high watermark of industrialization. Uh, all, all the kind of modernization of the economy and society that took place in the 19th and 20th century. And during that period, there, there, weren't, there was a distinct, there's always been a distinct Scottish culture, 
distinct uh, institutions that have existed, and that was part of the justification for the for the union with with England was that the idea was that this would be a kind of union that would protect the distinctiveness of Scottish society rather than being a, a, a colonial exercise where where Scotland as a culture would be forcibly integrated in, into England. And, and so pretty much that was a stable political settlement right through the 19th and, and 20th centuries, through the creation of the welfare state in the mid-20th century. But round about the late the late 20th century, round about the time you get the, the accession to power of, of Margaret Thatcher, you get the start of deindustrialization, uh, sort of rising levels of economic inequality, round about that time, there's a kind of reassertion of Scottish political identity that seeks greater self-determination there. And initially that, that is expressed uh, as a desire for a, a devolved parliament within the context of the United Kingdom, which eventually bears fruit when, when Labour come back into office after 1997 in the in the Scottish Parliament, which is kind of, so it's kind of like a sort of, in the US, I guess, like a kind of state legislature <laughs> of that, that sort of level of, of powers. Um, and and so that that's a kind of major step forward for Scottish self determination, but throughout this period, there's there's been a party in in Scotland, the Scottish National Party, that has always advocated independence. And and after that devolution takes place, the Scottish National Party uh, gradually gathers more support and eventually takes office in in the Scottish Parliament, takes over the executive command of the the, the Scottish Parliament in 2007. And from that point onwards, they're advocating for independence uh, and the complete separation of Scotland from from the United Kingdom, which even even at that point in 2007 is quite uh, has quite a low level of support. But by by the time we get to 2014, when the Scottish National Party are able to hold a referendum on whether Scotland should be an independent mm-hmm. nation, there is a big jump in support for independence. That referendum campaign um, dramatically increases the level of support for independence. It finishes with 55% in, in favour of staying in the UK and 45% in favour of independence. But that is a big jump compared to where the level of support you, you know used to be. And since that referendum, the Scottish National Party has been keen to have another referendum. And and that's sort of where we are in, in Scottish politics at the moment, is this question of, should there be a second referendum? Uh, when, when should it happen? And they, we've just had a set of elections uh, for the Scottish Parliament last week that resulted in a, a majority of members of the Scottish Parliament being elected who were in favour of a second, mm-hmm. a second referendum. Uh, that's the Scottish National Party and the Scottish Green Party, both of which are in favour of a referendum. And so now the stage is set for a big argument over the next few years about whether there should be another independence referendum. And we'll dig into the the, the two sides on there. Uh, but Liz, a thousand years uh, of Catalonian history. Uh, and yet, I think as we talked about before the referendum, it was probably something that most journalists who even cover Europe had never touched as an issue. Uh, give us, I mean, and Ben really set you up there. Do as good a job <laughs> in condensing history beautifully as he did. He did an amazing job. Uh, let's see if I can give you an idea of uh, a thousand years of Catalan history in, in three minutes or less. Um, the legend says that that uh, Guillermo uh, Guifreo Palus put his hands in his, in his blood as he was dying and put four fingers on his shield of blood, which are the, the four red stripes of the Catalan flag around 988. Um, so just to give you a kind of a legendary view of the, the birth of Catalonia. Um, but the truth is that, that uh, Catalonia predates the Spanish state by about 500 years. Um, and in fact, even when 
what we learned in, in grade school in the United States, Ferdinand marries Isabella. Isabella is mm -hmm. Castile. She's the queen of Castile. Ferdinand is the king of Aragon, which is a uh, confederation of kingdoms of, uh, of, of Aragon, of Catalonia, of Valencia, and of the Balearic Islands, Mallorca, Menorca, etc. Um, and, and that whole confederacy is a couple on speaking uh, territory. Um, that Catalonia loses its, its privileges um, in a war in, in uh, 1714, um, excuse me, in 17, uh, doesn't even matter, in, 17, in, the, in the early 18th century on September yeah, yeah. 11th, um, it is 1714. And um, this is when Spain takes away Catalonia's uh, constitution, it takes away its parliament, it takes away its, its representative government um, because Catalonia had uh, backed the wrong king, basically, where the Spanish um, backed the Bourbons. At any rate, um, the, but, but Catalonia doesn't go away, even though it's in 1714 when Spain begins to um, say that Catalans are not allowed to speak Catalan. Um, and, and the Catalan language is the basis for the Catalan uh, culture, the language, the, the dance, the, mu the music, the food, all of the different pieces. Um, the, the, the central piece of Catalan culture is the language. Um, and the, and, and there, the, the feeling about identity of Catalonia remains throughout these, these you know, last five centuries, but they're always a piece of um, being different than the rest of Spain. And Spain wants to, um, as every imperialist power wants, to enclose Catalonia within it. Catalonia is a entrepreneuring, uh, prosperous region that has always been um, very successful and, uh, and, and wealthy indeed. Um, the very first train that was, uh, that was built in all of Spain, including the colonies, was in uh, between Barcelona and Mataron. It was a private uh, venture. It wasn't, it wasn't a public thing. Anyway, so, um, so, the, so, so then we, I don't even know where to, there's so much to tell you in such a short amount of time. There's this dictatorship in the middle of the 20th century. And a big piece of that is also Catalonia wanting to be its own identity. Mm -hmm. um, that was brutally repressed by Franco for 40 years. You weren't allowed to speak the language. You weren't allowed to dance the dances. You weren't, they, so, so, so beating out Catalanism is a part of um, the, the quest for Spanish unity. The, the fact that Catalonia Yeah, I mean, I think we see very similar things in Italy, especially with the Italianization, exactly. even the sort of gross paper, paper over way, we'll change right. your name a bit, this kind of thing, so, yeah. And, and after Franco dies, peacefully in his bed, there's this whole transition, and there's this idea within Catalan that, you know, now we have an opportunity for democracy. And so they vote pretty much in favor of the new constitution under Spanish democracy, and that works for about 40 years, but there's this chafing because... Catalans want more autonomy. It's very similar to the Scottish situation in, in many ways, but Spain keeps pulling back. And so this kind of, um, it all comes to a head in 2010. There, and, and this is when there begins to be, there begins to be a really big uh, independence movement. Um, a million people in the streets every single year uh, for, for eight or nine years um, with people with this movement gathering momentum and saying, we really want, especially we want to be able to 
um, say what we want. We want to have a voice in the government. We don't want the Spanish um, judges to overturn the laws that are created in the Catalan Parliament. And and that this this friction between autonomy and Spain holding back is what really pushes the, the Catalan independence movement, which continues up until October 1st, 2017, which is when we have this referendum, which Spain says is illegal. And Catalonia says, this is the only way we have to express ourselves. And Spain eventually comes in, comes in on that day, on October 1st, and beats people, peaceful voters at the polls. And the people have their hands up in the air and say, we want to vote. Um, you know, this is, a, this is an incredible democratic process. Um, two and a half million people get to vote that day. And still, Spain says, no referendum even happened. Yeah, no, and that was beautifully done also. And I think, again, that's exactly when a lot of our audience will have entered the scene, seeing, uh, especially on Twitter uh, and, and, and YouTube, a lot of clips of things happening at polling places that exactly. didn't quite seem like Western Europe. It was, it was, it was an incredible day because there were these, this, in, this very strong, peaceful, grassroots, movement, people insisting on voting peacefully and brutal police action by the Spanish against voters. I mean, it's just like the, the, the biggest contrast you could imagine, people trying to vote and then being beaten for it in Spain. Buhar, uh, switching over to, to Kosovo, I mean, y'all did it the old-fashioned way, national liberation through uh, guerrilla and, and, and civil war. Um, a lot of Americans will know about this because, of course, we came in on your side and bombed Serbia uh, and, of course, helped with the liberation. But can you talk to us about, again, it all seems so clear cut, right? There was even even a military victory. And yet uh, Kosovo still has a nebulous status in the world, is not recognized by folks, seemingly is blessed by the United States. Like, what exactly is the problem? What is the holdup? Uh, and how does it play into uh, these some of these issues that we're talking about? All right. Well, I, I think I'm not going to go so far back in history. I can start maybe with, with the Ottoman the, Empire. No, no, no. It's the, okay. It's okay. With the Ottoman Empire, exactly. I can start with that. And I think that the, around the 16th century is when the Ottoman Empire uh, invaded. Oh, I was kidding, though. You don't have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> I just want to, to to connect it to to, to nationalism, which yeah, is the topic yeah. today, because uh, that was when when the Battle of Kosovo happened. And which is very, very often um, wrongly assumed that only Serbs fought, and I guess this is the cornerstone of, of the of the Serb nationalism. Uh, and actually, in this battle, uh, the people of the Balkans fought against the Ottoman Empire. So this is, I guess, where the whole story really starts with with, with reference to Kosovo, and which has implications uh, uh, in 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 so many ways to this day. Although this is something that happened in the in the 16th century. So so. This is what I wanted to say, but anyway, with 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 the Ottoman Empire, then you have five uh, centuries of, of Ottoman occupation, right? And so, in the 19th century, you have a, a kind of gradual liberation of these of these uh, countries in the in the Balkans, also because the Ottoman Empire is becoming weaker and weaker, right? Um, and so, in this time, actually, the Albania gained independence, but Kosovo was left out of this of of this sort of. Uh, uh, territory and it became part of the so-called first Yugoslavia. Okay, that's skipping forward to the second Yugoslavia, Kosovo was also always marginalized, right? It was always the poorest region in Yugoslavia. There are certain statistics, for example, from the OECD and so on, um, 
when they look at um, at the level of development of Yugoslavia and they, for example, look at the level of development of of of, uh, of uh, Slovenia, and it's comparable to, let's say, the level of development of Spain uh, at that time, right in the 80s. And the level of development in Kosovo is comparable to a third world country, right? So there was a there was a very big inequality in this regard, um, and it was in many ways also extractive and colonial, if you if you want, in this way, because a lot of the resources which were acquired de facto, a lot of coal and a lot of energy from Kosovo went de facto to the to the center and so on. Um, in 1976, I think That's if I'm yeah. <laughs> Uh, in 1976, I think if I'm if I'm if I'm right, I may be wrong by one or two years. Is when Kosovo gains uh, some sort of autonomy um, and has the right finally to open universities, so so Albanian-speaking universities for the first time in in Kosovo and so on and so on. And with the rise to power of Milosevic, this autonomy is actually taken away. Um, and it's not only taken away; also a lot of people are sacked from their work. And so you have a lot of uh, a lot of people who finally uh, who, who who lost their. And job. just to help out the audience, ninety percent of Kosovo is ethnic Albanian, Albanian speaking, etc. Yes, is the, the exactly. Right. So so all these ninety percent or, or the vast majority of them lost the right to to go to to work and lost the right to education. So a lot of education was actually in this time done in private homes. So people would educate educate in private, private homes and so on and so on. And then you have, of course, the breakout of the war in, in Bosnia and in, in Croatia. Um, and this is in this time, Kosovo was actually doing a, a peaceful struggle, right? So it was a kind of pragmatic uh, pacifism, what I like to call pragmatic pacifism. Um, and then, of course, with the repression and so on, with this kind of 10 years of blank, which Surprisingly, nobody mentions. Everyone mentions just the war. Nobody mentions this kind of period, which is which was before that. Um, then you had the sort of uprising, and you had a struggle. Um, and then the NATO intervened, right, uh, headed by the United States mostly. Um, and you had a sort of um, protectorate, an international protectorate, um, and you had a peacekeeping force until 2008. You still have a peacekeeping force, but the number is is very very much reduced. And in 2008, Kosovo declared independence. And so now getting to your question, <laughs> finally, um, the reason why why it is, uh, why it is Kosovo is not recognized is because of alliances and it's, it's purely, purely political. Of course, that, uh, that uh, Serbia has been, has been aligned for very long with Russia and Russia will not, will not recognize Kosovo for this very simple reason. Um, this is one reason. Um, another reason is, for example, why Spain wouldn't recognize Kosovo. And that is because of because of Catalonia, or why why uh, why um, Greece wouldn't recognize Kosovo, and this is because of Cyprus. Um, and so you have you have this kind of very big problems because Kosovo, in in a in a sense, is feared to set a precedent for these other for these other other nations or these other communities, which then want to uh, to to claim the right for for self determination themselves. Um, yeah, now. Is it legitimate to have uh, self-determination? Yes, totally. Uh, because the question actually that you have to ask here is what would be the alternative to that? So what is the alternative to self-determination? Is it subjugation? Is it non-determination? Uh, right. so, <laughs> so this is this is the question. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, and I think digging in um, especially to to some of the, the those coalition issues are really important. But first, I actually want to ask Ben, because in both of these other cases, we're hearing so much about 
you know, it not being a political project, but as much a cultural project uh, that people can point to. Um, we are always hearing with Scottish independence, it does seem like a pragmatic answer to Thatcherism, to neoliberalism, to people who want kind of more social democracy and they see really are, but is there also a cultural component? Do we see, like you see in Ireland, say, like, you know, a lot of young people relearning old languages, et cetera, or, or is this really kind of a progressive political project that lives outside of that world? Well, within the movement, within the people who've always advocated for, for independence, there's always been a cultural component that a lot of the, 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 the sort of founders of the, the movement and the people who've carried it forward have been people who've been very interested in Scottish history, literature and, and languages, Gaelic and and so on. But but I think to their to their frustration, they always found it was very, very difficult to generate a popular political appeal in Scotland that would be sufficiently broad ranging to win over enough votes to to, to get them into office and to, to support independence. And so for that reason they've tended to pivot away from making a pure cultural argument and, and making more of, as you say, a kind of socioeconomic argument, making a kind of social democratic argument. And I guess in part that's that's also because Scotland in the, the mid-late 20th century was quite a laborist political culture. It was a political culture that was dominated by heavy industry and then the decline of heavy industry by trade unionism uh, and by the Labour Party. And, and so in a way, nationalists have often sort of pivoted off of that to say, well, in a sense, the, the sort of nationalism of Scotland is the kind of labour nationalism. And, and so that's how we have to kind of present it. And, and the, the sort of electoral project the Scottish nationalists always had was basically how to win lots of votes off of the Labour Party in, in Scotland, who were the dominant party uh, up until the, the early 21st century. So in that sense, there's a culture, there's culture in the background, but but the broad appeal and the pitch that that the SNP are making at the moment is a is a socio-economic one. It's saying and a democratic one. It's, it's saying that that you know Scotland is a distinct political community that has distinct political preferences that need to be realised and can't be recognised because of the dominance of the the Conservative Party in in London. It's like in the argument of representation, sort of more than liberation, I guess, in some in some ways that you could say that. Liz, can you break down? Uh, I think this is a communications question as much as a political question, but how the words sort of patriotism for Spain versus nationalism for Catholic, how are these two things flavored differently in the media talk around the independence movement and how are they weaponized by both sides? Sure. Um, that's a really good question. You know, when you talk about nationalism, um, we often think instantly of uh, 1945 Germany. That's the the image of nationalism as as Nazi ethnic cleansing, Holocaust. You know, um, and in fact, nationalism is really um, it's a it's a celebration of. Uh, of a diversity of cultures um, by highlighting each one. You know, there, there, are, there are differences between Catalonia and uh, Scotland and um, Kosovo and, you know, different parts of France and different parts of wherever the, the world, each place has 
this identity, which is which which offers uh, this incredible wealth to the you know the the world of of nations. That those that's a wonderful thing. It's like the diversity in, in biology, um, and so. For a for a huge country like Spain or like France or like the UK or the United States or Russia to say no 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 you're being nationalist by wanting to speak Catalan or wanting to have your culture you should really only speak Spanish is you know it, it's it's accusing the other people of what you are doing yourself um, right in fact Catalan nationalism is. Um, I think very much like Scottish nationalism, and I know less about Kosovo, but I but I assume it's very similar. It's a very welcoming country. Um, we have had huge demonstrations in favor of welcoming refugees, um, in favor of equal rights for all various different groups, in favor of um, you know being solidarity with with other communities around the world. This is not an exclusive uh, ethnic cleansing kind of thing. In fact, you don't have to be. Um, one of the, the interesting things that I always find about Catalonia is that 70% of the people who live here um, are descendants of one or more parents that are from someplace else. And that is considered a, a, a positive thing. Um, so where, where maybe Spain considers itself patriotic, they say Catalans are nationalists and that's exclusive and it's not. Um, the Catalan parliament uh, only in the last elections has a new a xenophobic party, and it's not a Catalan party, it's a Spanish party. There have been no Catalan xenophobic parties in the Catalan parliament ever until, well, and then and, and that, that's just not one of the values that- And know, I wanna build on that because, you know, working uh, in Kosovo, seeing other things around, it occurs to me, and Buhar, I'll give you first, first bite at this though, but that having sort of progressive nationalist or, you know, whatever you wanna call it, projects does actually blunt the growth of kind of right-wing populism, nativism. Um, I, I was just struck when I first landed at the sort of folks who made up the rallies for Vet Vendosia, the Self-Determination Party, and what they were asking for. Uh, and not to be totally, you know, I was fresh off the plane, so I immediately jump into cliches, and I'm like, these don't look like people I would hang out with necessarily, and yet they're demanding things like more queer representation, some things like, you know, actually sort of progressive things. Do you, I mean, do you think in terms of, so, so two-part question, and it's tricky. Do, one, do you think that um, telling these stories and, and infusing it does give people different paths to positive things to go through? And do you think the resistance to it also just comes from an inconvenience of what you were saying before, these global alliances uh, that have been a certain way basically since the end of World War II, but certainly since, uh, the, end, certainly since the 1990s? And is this just you don't fit into the story. Everybody who's an independent nation stand up. Oh, you were too late. You, you and you sit down. Yeah, well, I think that what, what you're touching upon is uh, there needs to be a distinction, right? Because nationalism, yes, does have a, a negative connotation because of historical facts, as you mentioned, and so on and so on. Yeah. But we need to make a distinction because nationalism does not, or, or the, the concept of nation does not always, is not always exclusionary, right? It's not always exclusionary towards minorities and so on and so on. So we can make a distinction between, let's say, ethnocentric nationalism, and we can make a distinction between civic nationalism. And so I think this is the, the later one, which, which, which Kosovo wanted to, uh, to, 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 
to establish a sort of civic nationalism. You can see it, or which the kind of uh, uh, foundational fathers of Kosovo wanted to wanted to to establish in Kosovo. And you can see it in the in the in the map. You can see it in the um, in the flag. You can see it in the flag. You can see it in the anthem. You can see it in like how the laws are uh, of representation are built and so on and so on. And so there was never a question that Kosovo would would be this sort of ethnocentric kind of nationalist state, which would only always belong to to, to the Albanians and so on. Um, but within that within that country, there should be also a kind of it should be democratic, and democracy also involves the the, the right of the majority, right? for self-determination, for representation, international representation, and so on and so on. Um, and I think this is a kind of right which was denied to Kosovo for, for many, many years. And now we are like uh, 22 years after the war, or after the liberation of Kosovo, and Kosovo is still not part of, let's say, international organizations, and so on and so on. And this is the kind of sentiment, or this is the kind of aspects which really fueled this, this sentiment of nationalism in Kosovo. Um, and then you had growing demands, let's say, for unification with Albania, although I don't know how much popular that is actually within, within Kosovo. I would doubt that that would pass, but that is my personal opinion. Um, and this is what fuels actually this sort of, this sort of nationalist sentiment. Um, now we have sometimes, we also were trying to, to, to avoid, uh, in, ter in political terms, trying to avoid, let's say, this sort of uh, uh, Bosnia kind of uh, mm -hmm. effect in Kosovo, where you have, you know, as you said, 90% of Albanians, but then you have, you know, kind of minority which is blocking everything, and then you cannot, you cannot pass every anything in the in the parliament and so on and so on, and 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 this used to be very often the case. This used to be the case because of internal constraints, but mostly because of external external constraints. Um, so. So yeah, when you when you look at the question of when you look at Kosovo, you have so many decision-making factors. You have some. Uh, you you have the United States, for example, which is still kind of active in Kosovo. You have the European Union, which is split. So it is pretty much ambiguous. Which I, I don't know. You cannot be neutral in a moving train, right? <laughs> As someone said. So this is also creating many many different many different problems. So I think what you're talking about is is, is precisely this why it fueled nationalist sentiment. With regard to Vedlendose, it is very interesting because they they are not nationalist in a classic sense, as you said earlier, right? So they're they're left leaning le, left leaning uh, party. So so they do do not deny actually any sort of rights for for minorities and so on and so on. But they do um, empathize the, the the rights of the majority. Sorry, there's some noise going on behind me. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, but that absolutely makes sense. And Ben, I want to kick us back over to you, this question of international alliances. Wouldn't it just be easier if we have a world that functions in a certain way? So let me be that guy for a second, and I'm going to ask you an annoying question. Uh, so Scotland is independent. Doesn't this mean the end of the UK? Won't Wales, Cornwall, uh, you know, where does this all end? Um, you know, uh, a fractured universe that goes down to its small and component, you know, how can we justify this? How do you justify this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know, I think that is the argument, or one of the arguments against uh, Scottish independence that would be made by, by advocates of the United Kingdom, which is to say, well, the United Kingdom can be a very positive force because it's a, a bringing together of these different nations that can that can work together. And, and um yeah, I mean, there is a kind of question about does it does does every nation need a state or can you have these kind of multinational constructions? 
I mean, I think the the, the the sort of problem that the advocates of the United Kingdom have is that historically and, and in recent years, it, the United Kingdom has always been justified on the basis that it's a voluntary union. That's how it's been legitimated. Uh, you know, going back for you know years and years and years, British politicians have always said um, if Scotland wants to vote for independence, it can have independence. And of course, they, they said that at a time when support for independence was very low. But nonetheless, yeah. the, the legitimation of the United Kingdom has always been it is voluntary, it is democratic. Um, and so that then means that they're in a difficult position when one constituent nation expresses the view that it wants to have a referendum or to reconsider the terms of affiliation to the United Kingdom. And, and so in a way that the kind of advocates of the United Kingdom are boxed in a bit by that, that rhetoric that they've always used. Um, and it's a bit, I mean, it's different from Spain. It's a sort of different approach from the, the Spanish approach because the, the UK approach has been to say, no, no, you can, if you want to, you can vote to go and we'll even organise a referendum for you to do it in, in 2014. So it's a different kind of statecraft from the, the centre in London than you, than you get in Madrid. But it, but it does mean that they now face these kind of continued demands about, you know, wanting another referendum. And at the moment, the, the problem they have is they're trying to resist having another referendum when they've said for many, many years that it's perfectly possible for this kind of democratic decision making to take place because of the particular character of the United Kingdom as a as a voluntary union that brought together these nation states. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the, the, the mechanism should be baked into the cake there, if not anywhere. It's almost like the Constitution of... Uh... Texas famously actually has a, an escape hatch in it. Um, I, I, I do think that that's interesting. Um, and Liz, I'm just trying to remember what you said. We, we spoke yesterday and, and you said to a similar question, sure, like everyone who actually feels this way should be able to demand it. And I think when you examine it, that there will be very few cases when looked at that it wouldn't make sense for a people who have so decided to do so. That is premised on the idea of maybe referendums, which aren't always everyone's favorite, you know, democratic process. Uh, can you just expand a little bit uh, on like are referendums the only mechanism to sort of determine a people? We know that they're sort of a flawed form of direct, direct democracy. Expand on that. Sorry, I pitched you a weird one, but there it is. No, that's quite all right. The um, Right. So, I mean, I think that the argument, oh, if we let Catalonia be independent or we let Kosovo be independent, then everybody will want to. That's a straw man argument. Actually, not everybody wants to. Um, Texas, like you say, has their, their escape clause. But when they when there was a movement to have Texas and Texan independence, I think it was about 100,000 people who signed the petition. And there's 45 million people in Texas. So, you know, they, they don't really want to. I don't think California wants to either, despite perhaps reasons that they might want to. Um, so but but it seems to me. Um, so you said, what are the other methods for becoming a state. Well, one yeah, to is, finding what, out consensus of the people. It's a tricky thing, right? Well, consensus or legitimacy, because one of the one of mm. the tried and true methods of creating a state is having a war and killing people. And that's considered totally legitimate. Um, somehow having a referendum is seen as less legitimate than that. And uh, having a, 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 a people's movement that organizes mass demonstrations and organizes a referendum that the state refuses to recognize, somehow that's not legitimate, but killing people is, which is something that doesn't really make sense to me. Um, it, but, but, but the overall question about can anybody 
um, have a state or is self-determination, you know, a fundamental right? I mean, I think that's obviously yes. In fact, it's it's uh, part of the UN Charter that a nation should a nation that identifies as such because of its history, because of its language, because of its culture, simply because it wants to have this have a, a, it wants to feel represented. It wants to feel like it has a voice about its own affairs. That's the basis of this. It's the, the basis of it is freedom and it's democracy. And it's saying, we wanna organize our society in such a way that makes sense to us. And, and you know, nobody gets to say that you can't do that. There's no like, just because, you know, Ferdinand and Isabella got married 500 years ago, somehow couple ones are forever part of Spain because they say so. That's not the way it works. That, you know, the democracy must have the consent of the governed. And so when, when a, a nation comes together and says, you know, we need to figure out how we're gonna feel represented, they don't feel represented when the Spanish courts overturn law after law after law in the Catalan parliament because Catalan society tends to be more progressive and more left learning than leaning than the Spanish one. And so, so, so this autonomy, which was supposed to be the solution here, and letting, in quotes, Catalonia have its own laws and then overturning them means that that relationship is flawed and it doesn't work. So that's where Catalans say, okay, well, the autonomy doesn't work, so we need to, to, to look for better solutions to feeling this representation, to, to living in a democratic society where we get to decide how we make our laws. And Spain said no. You can't, Spain continues to say no to this day. And in fact, after the referendum that we insisted on having, and even though they beat us, and that they put all of our political leaders in jail and sent them into exile. I mean, that is, that's not democracy in any shape or form. Peaceful civic leaders are in jail at this moment for holding a referendum in Catalonia that represents a majority opinion of the people here. 80% of the people believe that this conflict, this conflict of, of ideas about who should govern this country, um, believe that it should be solved by a referendum. So referendums may not be ideal, but they're better than war. And they're, they're, they're a democratic way of, of listening to people. You know, what I, would, what I would prefer would be that, you know, Spain says, all right, let's see if really there's a majority of people who want to have their own country. Why can't we vote on it? Why, or, you know, why can't we have a, a, a lengthy educational process saying, all right, well, what is it that you want and what is it that you don't have and how would it be different and what, and, and not the fear campaign, for example, that they had in Scotland where they said, you know, watch out because if you become an independent country, you're not going to be a part of the EU and look what happened, <laughs> you know? The, um, yeah, totally. You don't get it anyway. You don't get it anyway. So, so, so this idea that you should be able to have this educational campaign, really have a fair vote, and then people should be able to decide. That's the best way to figure out who should govern. You know, I hate to give uh, anyone who's on the opposing side ideas, but the thing that I will say, you know, listening to both you and Ben is, uh, and Buhar, I, this is going to be a pivot to you. This is going to be a brilliant thing. It's going to pivot right to you, the whole thing. <laughs> but what we do in America, and we are master vote suppressors in America, is we wouldn't hold out on having the referendum or the vote. We would just have 30 of them, and each of them would be confusing as to exactly what they were. This is what we do, especially in Texas, right? There's always an election, and it's always 
always about something and there's always advertising behind it. And so you just, number one, you get tired, you get confused and, uh, and then you don't have this sort of high stakes drama game that I don't see them winning in the end, right? Uh, I think in the UK, especially you see sort of Cameron just being like, what are the chances any of this stuff happens? Let's just like go for it. And it's when you don't have the imagination to think of these things is when it happens. But Buhar, you certainly have plenty of elections in Kosovo and none of them seem to stick. Uh, but of course, this last one for the self-determination movement was the most overwhelming victory uh, of, of any party, etc. cetera, in, in, in Kosovo. Do you see this as the desire um, as sort of the same thing as an independence movement, just sort of people looking to consolidate their actual self-determination, not in a purely political way, but in a movement way. Do you know what I mean? Like it's sort of more in popular power than in legal power, because as we know, that's a very fragile thing in a, in a young nation like Kosovo. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, well, I wanted to connect first to, to, to what Liz said, oh, because, uh, because uh, actually not a lot of people know this, but in 1991, Kosovo had an, uh, a referendum and declared independence. And uh, no. that, was not, that was not respected by anyone. It was recognized only by, by Albania. And what I want to say is that the referendums have to have a just basis, right? And people have to have this kind of feeling that they are this sort of imagined community and they belong together, as Liz was saying, and so on and so on. And in the case of Kosovo, I think that it is indisputable that that kind of just uh, basis was there. Because, um, and this is in a way kind of the absurdity of the, of the issue now in terms of like Serbia not recognizing Kosovo, because how can you, you know, like burn down a country, plunder it, commit genocide and do all these things and then in the end say, I don't recognize you. So, so what is the alternative? What is the kind of what is the kind of other way? I mean, this is like saying you know Poland should be again part of Germany. It's absolutely ab absurd, you know, in terms of like the basis for for why people in Kosovo want to claim self determination. Now, to get to your question, I think that yes, I think that the the kind of the the broad appeal of Vedvendosi was uh, also because of the failure of the past governments. So the failure of of the past past governments to really kind of stand. It, as kind of Kosovo, right? To in to kind of self-recognize themselves, I would say, like like in in that way, because uh, it was always, of course, that the talk was Kosovo is independent and so on and so on, but it was always concessions, 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 um, and Kosovo was not gaining anything. And I think that that this is the reason why people voted for Vedvendosi because they have a hope um, that they will change something, and this is a very big majority, and so maybe we have some leverage there, right? So we in the in the past it was always like fractions, you know. This party has ten percent, that party has twelve percent, and in the end they could never do nothing, and not, none of the governments could stick also for very long. Um, and so now there is a hope with with uh, that there's going to be some change. Uh, there are some problems, of course, that now with the pandemic, for example, this is not something very easy to overcome, especially for a country like Kosovo, which is very poor, has has limited resources. Um, but yeah. I think that the momentum is good for Vedvendosje um, and the work that they do remains to be seen, right? This is something that we cannot, we cannot judge, we cannot judge from now. And I'm personally I'm very, very hesitant. No, <laughs> just, I know, I know. Even more hesitant with my question here, but it's a quick lightning round uh, just uh, just to end up, which is, and then wait until I finish asking everyone, but is, Ben, will there be a second uh, referendum and when? 
Liz, uh, will there be, uh, you know, additional movements and when? And Buhar, should we uh, anticipate movement in the recognition uh, of Kosovo uh, internationally based on these other places maybe having successful things? So go quick, Ben, you first. Uh, yeah, I, I think there will be, but I think it'll be in a few years because actually I, I, I don't think either side really wants to have a referendum right away. The pro-independence side hasn't quite sorted out exactly what it's going to see in terms of what an independent Scotland will, will look like. Yeah. Um, and although it suits them politically to say they want a referendum now, they're, they're probably not ready for it. And meanwhile, the UK side wants to put it off for as long as possible. But I think eventually there has to be uh, another another kind of democratic legitimation of the of the union or or the dissolution of it because there's now such a, a kind of passionately held and extensive critique of the union within within Scotland that that I don't think it's sustainable to keep that going for longer than than a few years so I think there, there will be but the, the kind of micro politics of how you get to having another one is quite complicated and and you know might take a, quite a few years to work out Liz. Um, so I want to want to stress that part of the issue is about alliances, but there's a big piece that's economic and about power. Um, and Spain really, really, really doesn't want to let go 20% uh, of its of its um, of its in taxes, and which is yeah, yeah. which is Catalonia. Um, and so that will be very, very difficult for them to allow us to have a vote. But will it go away? No, of course not. Not at all. In the last elections, 52% um, of the people in Catalonia voted for pro-independence parties. That's a majority. Um, it's not a huge majority, but it's a majority. And, and those people aren't going away. Um, so, and we still have our um, political leaders in jail for holding a referendum. So that's another motor that keeps people moving and say, you can't just like turn away and say, oh, well, sorry, we lost. No, because you can't leave those people in jail unjustly. So there's a, there's a slogan that says, we'll do it again. And we will do it again as many times as it takes to get the representation that we believe that, that, that every human deserves in a democratic system. Um, how long it will take to happen? Is anybody's guess right now? The Catalans are famous for um, infighting, and and uh, right now that's pretty 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 uh, pretty bad time in terms of that. Right, right after these elections, they haven't been able to form a coalition government, and everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else. Um, yeah, but, I think but that's our listeners will have noticed you said independence parties and not independence <laughs> party, which certainly puts no, a lot of clarity on the Scottish situation. Right, you know, there's right, a party right. identified singularly with the movement. Sure, and no, there's three, which is an interesting thing because then there's sort of a center-right party, a center-center party, and a center-left, and a, and a more left party, which is which, which kind of shows the representation it has throughout society. Um, and it's also true that younger people are much more pro-independence than very old people or people who suffered during the, 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 um, the dictatorship who you know, might be worried about um, fighting for independence because, you know, who knows what will happen. So, so I think that with time, it's inevitable that we will um, eventually become independent. How it will happen, I'm not sure. But, but I know that people aren't just going to give up. And Buhar, last word. You know it's not easy. You can be independent but not really be independent. No, but, <laughs> kind but, of, you can. 
But as Liz was saying again, I mean, these things that don't go away just because you put them under the carpet. And I mean, there was a big attempt in the, let's say, to 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 uh, assimilate the Catalan language, but it's still there, right? It's flourishing now. And I think this is the same the same issue with with Kosovo. Um, with regard to the recognition, I don't see personally how the big players, let's say Russia or China, are going to move very soon in recognizing Kosovo. That would make like a like a major change. Uh, like any of the members of the UN Security Council uh, would would recognize would recognize Kosovo, and that could you know inspire other countries to 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 recognize Kosovo. Because right now we have like a kind of pretty clear cut uh, uh, way in the countries which have recognized Kosovo, you know, and the, versus the countries that don't did not recognize recognize Kosovo. Um, and that is one thing. And the other thing is that Serbia is actively working for the de-recognition of Kosovo. So they're going yeah. to. They're going to countries in, 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 in Africa, which recognized Kosovo, for example, and corrupting officials, giving them a lot of money. And actually to, flipping them. To, yeah. Exactly, flipping them to de-recognize us. And so this, this is the kind of limited capacity that we have as a 2 million, uh, as a 1.7 or 8 million country with, with, with very limited resources and very limited diplomatic power also. Um, and so that's why we need alliances. And that's why we need to rely on like, powerful countries like like the United States and Germany to actually help us in this in this process. Uh, but any kind of small gain, you know, sometimes you have this news and, you know, what uh, some small, small island somewhere in the Caribbean recognized Kosovo and so on. Any sort of small news like this is good because it kind of it reaffirms that, you know, it, it can go on. And so I don't know also how much longer it's going to it's going to go. But uh, the only problem is that the damage that is being done to the people of Kosovo is tremendous. Uh, people not being able to move freely, they all the sort of all yeah. sort of bureaucratic, you know, uh, complications that they have, and so on and so on. So this is a whole generation which is lost because of this sort of this sort of um, uh, uh, difficulties. Thank you so much, Buhar. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Ben. Uh, and we'll all have all of you back to get in deeper on this stuff. And thank you all for joining us. And next week, we're going to be digging in deeper on the communications behind the climate debate, a war we seem to be losing. <laughs> thank you. Ciao. Committee, we're young, we're submitting, we're committing.